Hello and welcome to The Whole Life. I'm Paul Woolley. And I'm Grace Fielding. And today we're talking about the imagination. Well, it's good to be back. Um, And today, yeah, we're going to be asking, what is the imagination? And what role does the imagination play in our human experience? And how might we use the imagination to engage with and apply the Christian story to our everyday lives? These are such deep questions, aren't they? I think we need some help. And I'm delighted that help is on hand in the form of Paula Gooder. Paula is an outstanding New Testament theologian and canon chancellor of St. Paul's Cathedral. Paul's written numerous books. I've counted 30, but there could be more. They're on subjects like heaven, the body, the empty tomb, Easter, uh, two novels, two novels, one on Phoebe, a story, 2018, that was published in, and then Lydia, a story, 2022, which really bring alive the first century and the Apostle Paul in new ways. Paula, it is so good to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. It's really lovely to be here. What's going on in St Paul's Cathedral? Um, We're all recovering from Christmas. Um, Christmas is um, quite full on at St Paul's and uh, you have to, I think it should be written into the job description of a job at St Paul's is you have to like Christmas carols because we sing an awful lot of them during December. But um, yes, we, um, so normal life is um, proceeding. Uh, We have our services morning and evening um, and then lots and lots of other things always going on at St Paul's. Amazing. It sounds incredible. I love Christmas carols, so um, I, I, I wish I'd been there. Um, I learned two really interesting facts, Paula, about St Paul's Cathedral today. I wonder if you can verify these for me, please. The first <laughs> is that it has one of the largest domes in the world at a whopping 366 feet. Is that right? Have you been up there? Um, I have. I try not to go too often because um, it's. I forget the exact number of steps, but it's over 500 and um, it's not for the faint-hearted, and I am often faint-hearted when it comes to climbing the dome. So yeah, I, I stay on terra firma. Amazing. And the second fact um, that I discovered is that the suffragettes planned to blow up the bishop's throne in t- uh, 1913. Um, did you know that? I never knew that yeah, before. Yeah, I did. There's, um, unfortunately for us at St Paul's, we are the site of a number of protests. Um, and there are um, laying aside how you feel about the different movements. Um, it is actually quite difficult to be in a, in a location where people come to protest because it, it, it makes life a little bit complicated. So, yes, the suffragettes are not the only people who have um, protested at St Paul's. I can imagine. Um, and it really is a remarkable thing, just the fact that women had no right to vote until 1918. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm very glad that we now can vote. <laughs> no, it is quite um, amazing well, when yeah, you think about it, it, isn't it? Oh, when, um, about, and how it far is. we've come. Absolutely. And hopefully continue to go further. <laughs> um, yeah, Paula, it's such, a, it's such a joy to have you with us today. Um, so let's maybe kick off um, with kind of a basic question, but actually isn't particularly an easy question necessarily. Um, what is the imagination? And then perhaps from there, you could talk a little bit about what your theology of the imagination is. Well, that's it's a really as you know it's probably the chunkiest question you're going to ask so uh probably worth getting it out there in the start and um i think imagination means all sorts of things to 
to each of us. You know, we, we have a different idea about imagination. So when I use the word imagination, um, it's about that creative streak, the creative spark that allows you to think broadly and more widely, um, that kind of shows different ideas, that explores things in different ways. So for me, when I'm thinking about imagination, it's about how do we begin to um, think in different ways. And for me, one of the really significant things about imagination is it in engages the emotion. When I'm when I imagine things, I feel emotional, whereas when I think logically, I think less emotionally. So I think there is something about emotion that is quite important. And um, if I'm honest, I don't really have a theology of imagination um, in or if I, if I do, it's a very basic one. So let me tell you my very basic theology of imagination. We can talk about Please. it a bit more, which is that I think as human beings, as people who are in Christ, who have um, been transformed by the light of Christ, we are called to be co-creators with God. Um, and the idea for me is that actually it is our fundamental calling as human beings to um, to work with God, to create the world in the way in which God yearned for it to be. So if I have a theology of imagination, I'm imagining that imagination is what God wants the world, that that's, that's the world as God wants it to be. And the task of imagination is us being called into um, co-creating that imagination with God which is why scripture becomes really important because you can't know what mm. God's vision for the world is until you've actually got that sense of um, what's going on in scripture and the you know the, the passages that run all the way from Genesis to Revelation about what the world could be um, I think we're called to imagine that with God and then to try and co-create it together that's all I've got for you, but it'll do for a start. No, that's wonderful. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and you've led really nicely onto my next question, which is, and um, we probably see in things like religious art and literature and music, um, how these have clearly expressed and uh, shaped lots of our theological ideas. Um, and you mentioned a bit about scripture just then, um, but I wonder if you could maybe speak a bit more to in what sort of ways does the Bible specifically um, encourage or maybe you've got examples of how it actually discourages the use of our imagination oh yeah well you see the thing that's really fascinating about the bible and and this is true I might I need to say at the start for some people and not everybody um because I discovered this while I was doing a talk about imagination recently and I kind of knew it but it was useful to hear it is that I'm a very visual person so when I read a bible story I see it in my mind's eye and I kind of I, I in my mind's eye I know what Jesus looks like and I know what the disciples look like uh, at least as far as my mind's eye tells me I know what the scene looks like and so in terms of imagination when we're thinking imaginatively um, scripture is really important because for me I imagine the stories and I see them um, unfolding as I'm reading I discovered not long ago, um, like I say, I knew already, but it was really helpful to have, had, have it um, knocked home to me, is not everybody does. And it was one of those where, you know, when, when you, there is something that you do all the time, and I just naturally kind of assume that everyone sees a picture in their mind when they read a story. To discover that everyone does kind of makes me go, oh, okay then. Um, and we might want to talk about that a little bit. Um, but so, so one of the things I think that happens with the Bible and imagination is that we imagine the stories. I mean, it is very, very difficult, I think, um, but other people might disagree, um, to hear the story of Christmas 
and not immediately have in your mind's eye um, Mary and Joseph and, and the manger and the animals and, G- and Jesus in the manger. Um, you just, I, I see it automatically. And that's where you get into the question about art that you mentioned. Because one of the really interesting things is that um, art really informs how we see scripture. It certainly informs, I mean, just again, if we go to the other end of Jesus's life, think about the Last Supper. It's really, really hard to think about the Last Supper without da Vinci popping into your head. And even though we all know that the chances of them being dressed um, in the clothing that they had, all sat down one side of the table looking outwards, um, is so unlikely for the Last Supper that, you know, I think of all the things we can say that didn't look like that, we can be confident it didn't look like that. But try thinking about the Last Supper without da Vinci popping into your head, and it's really hard. So I think there's something about imagination that means that we do imagine, but we have layers of imagination that are put in there by nativity plays at Christmas, by artwork, by films that we've watched, by all sorts of different things. Um, And the thing that I've become really interested in as I've explored more about the Bible and the imagination is simply how much how, and how how much we've got that have been inherited from other people and how hard it is to kick it out of your head once it's there. Mm, mm. I was thinking that when you were speaking, actually, of, you know, I've never thought about it in that sense before, but actually is what I'm imagining my own imagination yeah. or is it somebody else's imagination that I've then seen in, whether it's, you know, a child's Bible yeah. story or or an adaptation on on screen or, um, and yeah, that, that distinction, it's really hard. Yeah, as you say, that sense of layers and, um, we probably will never know no, what was sort of from yeah, us that's somebody right. or somebody else. I mean, a, a funny um, example of it for me is that so I grew up reading the Good News Bible. And whenever I think about Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well, that line drawing comes into my mind. Um, I know mm. there's no Jesus didn't look like a line drawing suddenly when he was in Samaria. Um, but it's but it is those kind of things about how your childhood influences really affect um, what you see. Mm. Um, and mm. I want to go. There's nothing wrong with it. But it's useful if you're aware of it. That's the only thing is that if yeah. we assume yeah. that um Jesus's birth looks exactly like um, the image that pops into our mind when we think about it that's when you get into problems yeah absolutely and thinking about um we've sort of spoken about childhood influence and whether that's you know storybooks um or things that we might have seen growing up and I think it's probably fair to say that children are known for having amazing imaginations and whether that's through things that they draw or stories that they tell um But I wonder if we can maybe all relate to the fact that it can be very easy as we grow up for our imagination to feel a bit dry or maybe for us to feel like it's just harder to get into that space um, of imagining. So I wonder to what extent uh, do you feel like imagination is is important or maybe is actually neglected in um, sort of two areas, one being scholarship, um, but then I suppose more broadly, just life in general? Um, It is hugely neglected. And I'll tell you one thing that I've discovered. So um, Paul mentioned that my first book where I did real imagining came out in 2018. And I've been doing it pretty constantly ever since. So however many years is that? Five years, coming up to six years now. Um, The thing that I've noticed is that um, it takes practice. And the more you do it, the easier it gets. And that's the thing that I don't think I was aware of until I started. And that, I think, is a very, very interesting one, is that because the way in which we read the Bible often 
people assume that imagination is not ha- you know if you kind of had your list of toolkits things that you need to read the bible um i'd be interested in how many people would say in my toolkit is imagination it's almost as though we feel that that's not really allowed when we're reading the bible mm. so when we feel that it's not really allowed then actually we don't do it very much and if we don't do it very much then actually um it becomes quite difficult and one of the things I think is really interesting about imagination is simply recognizing it it takes practice. And the mm. other thing that I would notice about it is that um, what, what I would like to say about how I read the Bible imaginatively is what I do is I get to know the world. So when I'm imagining what Jesus looked like, I like to think that I now know what clothes he would have realistically wore, um, you know, how how bleached they would have been, you know, how kind of what colour they might have been, what the the, the scenery looked like um, when Jesus was sitting down on a mountain, um, what Lake Galilee looks like, you know, you, you go on and on. But actually, one of the things I think it's really good for us to do is if we practice with our imagination and then deliberately insert into it things that we know to be true from history. What pots look like when people carried them, what kind of fire they used to cook fish on the beach, those kind of things. Um, once you know those things, you can start inserting them back into your imagination and then things start mm. to come to life, I think, in a really interesting way. Yeah, yeah. so sort of in some ways, research is just as much a part of bringing our imagination alive, really. In that absolutely. Sense. And the thing that you will notice mm. about art history is one of the things that's absolutely fascinating is that they always bring the story into their day. So if they're a 17th century painter, they're probably going to paint Jesus wearing 17th century clothes. If they're 19th century, they're going to paint a 19th century scene. And one of the things that, so the reason our imagination gets all jumbled up is we've got 14th century 17th century 19th century 21st century images bopping around in our heads um, while we're trying to think about Jesus and um, again I would want to go that's fine so long as you're aware that that's what's going on um, mm. it's the when we forget that that's what's going on that we get into the kind of challenges I think yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? I, um, on the one hand, you sort of think, oh, that's really good that happens because that's contextualization and that's incarnational. On the other hand, it can be really unhelpful if we end up with the impression that, you know, Jesus looked like me, for example. Yeah. Or, <laughs> exactly. Or, or the right. sort of person I would have been 200 years ago, whatever. Mm. Amazing. Um, and you were talking there, Paula, about the, the need or the desirability of exercising the imagination, a little bit like a muscle, perhaps. Yeah which is interesting because I have just started reading this book. Um, it's called The Imagination Muscle by Albert Reed. It's always dangerous probably to reference books that you've only just started. So I don't really know how it's going to go. <laughs> you might go but, badly wrong um, halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> it looks really interesting and it's asking questions about where does the imagination come from? How do we have better ideas? How do we imagine successfully into later life? Which I think takes up the idea that maybe we are conditioned out of it. And I was struck um, a little while ago about reading some research that wasn't looking at the imagination, but was looking at our um, tendency to ask questions. And it compared children with adults, and it showed that the number of questions uh, children ask every day, as, as some of us know, um, is just extraordinary. Um, but that that then just tapers off until it, it just reduces and reduces and reduces into adulthood. So I wonder whether there's a link there between our 
um, propensity to ask questions and be curious about the world and at the same time exercise our imaginations, whether those two things are linked. Um, who knows? But it's so, so interesting. Do you think there's a, a tension, Paula, between reason and imagination in theology? I guess where I'm coming from is when we were um, introducing you at the start, I think I was going to say at one point that you'd written a number of conventional theology books, and then there were these two imaginative novels. Um, but then I, I kind of, you know, checked myself because I kind of realized exactly what you've said, that obviously you're bringing your imagination to all the work that you're doing. Nonetheless, do you think that there can be a tension? How do theologians balance the need for logical, rational argument and thought with creative and imaginative aspects of their work? It's a, it's a brilliant question because it's, it's kind of, I think it sits right at the heart of theology. And um, I've had some really interesting conversations with people since um, writing Phoebe and Lydia and also Women of Holy Week is the other one that I did, um, which is about imagination, where people kind of want to say to me, how do you respond to the charge that you're just making it up? Um, and what I want to say is um, I would just take the word just out of the making it up in the sense that what I'm doing is doing an act of theology um, and an act of theology is always, and some people will hate me for saying this, but in a way it's always about making it up because what we're trying to do is to put into words things that can't be put into words you know the, the very essence of god cannot be described and therefore what we're trying to do is find words that that will kind of half do the job but recognize they only half do the job systematic theology is about pulling everything together to make a kind of a systematic theme about what's going on um which we actually have to do by making it up you have to work out how it fits together and then you pull things in um, and so one of the things I want to say is that there has historically been a tension between reason and imagination because logic has been privileged over um, the task of storytelling and imagination um, and I think what's happening today is that we're beginning to recognize that storytelling brings with it a set of tools that don't um, replace logic and reason, but they do sit very happily alongside logic and reason. If I can give an example, um, because I think um, it's, it's fascinated me for a really long time, this. Um, if you listen to people talking about things that are important for, for them, the most of the time, not everybody, but most people, most of the time, will tell you something about what's important. And when they're talking about an idea is what I, I mean here. Um, they'll do it by telling you a story. They'll say, well, I was walking down the street and or I was sitting in the park and or I know somebody who and then off they'll go tell you the story. And um, there's some really interesting research done on human brains. And that's um, again, I've been absolutely fascinated by um, our brains and our use. of. Um, so often what we we do is that we learn information through stories so it's through the anecdotes people love an anecdote to tell you about uh, whatever it is that they want to talk to talk about but then you store the information because you in, stories take up more room so you store it as an abstract idea rather than as a story and one of the problems that um, various scholars have identified is one of the issues in communication is that we forget that we've stored the idea as an abstract idea when originally we learned it as a story. So we tell it to someone else as an abstract idea 
And then we don't understand why they don't get what we're talking about. And part of the challenge, I think, about getting people to think deeply and to explore ideas is to translate your abstract ideas back into stories again so that people can get them. Um, it doesn't mean that abstract ideas aren't important. It doesn't mean that reason and logic isn't important. But if we only occupy the area of reason and logic, you lose something really important about how people gain knowledge in the first place, how they understand what it means for them, um, and how they actually apply it to their own lives. And Amazing. the last thing I would say um, on the subject is Jesus knew that because the vast majority of teaching that Jesus did um, was stories. Um, you know, you've got the big chunky bit in um, the Sermon on the Mount, which is just aphorism saying after saying after saying. But the rest of it was him telling stories and him doing things and people writing them down. Um, that's how it's worked. And uh, one, so what in a way, what I would and my call really for Christians is to remember that imagination doesn't replace logic, but it sits alongside it in a really important way. And without it, you lose something really vital. It's so interesting, isn't it? And related to our earlier point, it's interesting, isn't it, that the other thing that Jesus does in addition to telling stories is he asks a lot of questions and those things seem to go together. And maybe he's encouraging people and asking those questions mm -hmm. to engage their imaginations as yes. well as him using his imaginations yeah. to talk yeah. about the kingdom of God. Yeah. Um, incredible. Um, you've talked a little bit about the, the sort of thought processes you have whether it's writing a book like Lydia or whether it's um, a sort of um, more kind of conventional um, a theology book, uh, entering the world of the first century, seeing what that looks like, even imagining what Jesus looks like. How, how just talk a little bit more about that, if you would, how has the imagination shaped um, not only your own scholarship, but approach to working life and, and maybe working in organisations? And how do you think we could encourage people to use their imaginations more in their everyday lives and work? Have you got any thoughts on that? Oh, so, so many ways. I mean, the first is storytelling, which is what we've touched on already, um, and just simply recognising the power of a good story. Um, for me, that's one of the really key things. And um, I think in terms of things we need to practice, telling good stories um, is one of the really important ones. And of course, there's a real strand in Christianity, which is a very important one, which is of telling your testimony. And one of the things that I think is very, very important for Christians um, is to learn to tell their testimony and to listen to other people telling theirs, because that is the ultimate story of how um, faith has made a difference. So learning storytelling and um, and one of the things I've, I've kind of been reflecting on in terms of kind of the importance of that um, is that by and large, British people are quite hesitant about rhetoric. Um, we've become kind of quite um, kind of anxious about it. So people will say something like, oh, that was just rhetoric. Um, whereas if you notice the in America, rhetoric is held up as a really high um, value. Um, Barack Obama is a really interesting example of this, of somebody who very clearly understood the importance of rhetoric, practiced the rhetoric and then became a great speech maker as a result of it. And one of the things I think we need to be better at um, generally um, 
over here in the United Kingdom, um, but also um, kind of in terms of our faith is um, being more comfortable with words having power, that actually putting rhetoric around words, being people who can tell a crackingly good story that will draw people in um, is important. So that's one thing, the storytelling. But of course, imagination means a whole range of different things. Um, and imagination isn't just about telling stories. It's about um, looking forward and seeing how things could be. It's about the potentiality of stuff. Um, and I mentioned that when I was talking earlier about um, being co-creators with God and my theology of imagination is that in a sense as Christians, we're called to imagine how the world could be and live like we believe that to be the, how the world is. Um, and so therefore, I think imagination is not just about storytelling. It's about living into the future, understanding what God yearned for the world. And so that's about using your imagination, not just about telling stories, but actually about um, seeing what could be. And the people that I think who influences the most, are the people who hold up a future and say, this is how life could be. Um, and I think that's something really important for us. So it's kind of it's both and, I think. Mm, so interesting. It was Mario Cuomo, wasn't it, in the United States who came up with the phrase of we campaign in poetry, we govern in prose. And his thing there was about, he was drawing the distinction, I suppose, between campaigning and kind of politics proper. But nonetheless, it sort of highlights the fact that certainly within the United States and also within our own political culture historically, there was quite a tradition in terms of rhetoric and poetry in communicating big political ideas and the sort of new world that you know various politicians would want to um, bring about. And I also wonder, as you were talking, whether there's a link between the use of the imagination and then empathy, um, that the imagination allows us to put ourselves into the shoes of others, and therefore maybe it helps us to become more empathetic, more sensitive to those around us. Um, here's a thought. So I want to test this with you, see if you think this is any good. But um, I suppose this is partly how I think about kind of life. And if, if you like my own, the, the way that I then enter the, use my imagination maybe, and, and kind of inhabit the biblical story. And that is, um, uh, for want of a better phrase, um, this is that. So in other words, um, in my day-to-day -day work life, um, I'll come across um, situations, um, uh, a, a, a particular scenario. Um, and from time to time, I'll think, oh, this is a bit like that. Um, this is a bit like the situation that those people faced. And I'm, I'm then drawing back into or going back into it and drawing back on the biblical story. Um, and then I wonder, possibly do this less well, but about the, the helpfulness then in trying to apply some of the biblical wisdom that we see in then those situations that we think are in some ways analogous to our own, um, drawing on the biblical wisdom and applying it. So that's a um, kind of a, a fairly wordy kind of um, way of asking a question. <laughs> but do, do you get what I'm about? And what totally, do you think yeah. of that? Is, do you think that's legit? So, do you have any advice for me in that? Um, I, yeah, to, I think it's entirely legit. And I think it's how we 
one of the fundamental ways in which we read the Bible well is to recognise that there is a long string of continuity between all people. Um, and when you recognise that um, our humanity and their humanity intersects, then you realise the ways in which you can learn things from how they, what they experience, what they learned in that context. And for me, the, you know, some people often say, you know, why do we have to read some of these parts of the Bible? You know, they're really grim gory bits in Joshua and Judges, all those kinds of things, or kind of the miserable Psalms. You could go on, couldn't you? But why do we have to read those bits? They're really hard. And the answer is because um, they lived a life which intersects with our lives because humanity has those points of intersection. And so one of the things I think that's really important to recognise is the way in which we do have those points of intersection of humanity to humanity. And therefore, we can learn if God wanted to teach the people in the kind of second century BC something, God can teach the same lesson to us if we um, if our ears are open to hear. The danger we always have, and there is not an easy way around this, is to note the discontinuity as well as the continuity. So the continuity is, is the common human strand. The discontinuity um, is one in which we have to begin to recognise that our world is not the same as their world. And um, so... Again, an example might help, may help to illustrate that. Um, one of the things that we often talk about um, when we're talking about um, the New Testament is Jesus's language of Abba. Um, Abba meaning father in Aramaic. And um, it's off, the point is often made from there that, um, that really you should translate it as daddy because um, that's the language that we would use today. The problem, of course, with that is that we live um, in a world that has a relationship between a child and a father, which is both intimate and informal. But we know about the first century world that actually the relationship between a child and their father was intimate but formal. So therefore, um, there is no way that a child in the first century would ever address their father as daddy because they didn't have an informal relationship. They had an intimate relationship, but it was formal, not informal. Um, and so often what we then do is we kind of whip something that we know from our world and pop it into their world. Um, and then you'll find people like biblical scholars like me pulling faces going, not so much um, because of the problem that you get from it. Um, and I, it, it's a kind of it's in a way that's a trivial example, because in reality, I think if we think of calling um, God daddy, there's no problem with it at all. But if we read that into the first century, then you get that's where you get a problem. So it's the this is that works really, really well. So long as you add in that this is not that as well. And that's the kind of the key bits. And that's where it gets a little bit more complicated about how you navigate that this is that and that this is not that. Well, definitely. Uh, I think we need to recover some of the formality of the first century. I will be telling my own children. Yes, that's right. Yes. Thing, so. <laughs> You'll be instructing them to call you father yes, from now on. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh -huh. um, Paula, as you've been chatting, one of the things that I've been wondering, and maybe maybe the answer to this question is that we should all read the book that Paul's. Um, yeah, I'm thinking we moment, should. But we've spoken. We've spoken about um, exercising the imagination and practicing it. And I suppose a question that just came to mind um, is. What does that actually look like in practice? So, you know, how, how if I want to become more imaginative, if I want to read the Bible in a way that is more imaginative, um, you've clearly done lots of this. So how do I do that? How do I actually um, inhabit that world? Um, you pay very, very close attention to the text. 
So there's kind of various things that you can do um, that begin to get you into it. Um, so what I would suggest that you do is um, start with a story that you know really well, one that um, kind of is, is kind of in your blood. And before you do anything else, you imagine the story. So um, and and one of the things um, there's a, a form of spirituality, which is called Ignatian spirituality that suggests doing this, which I think is a really powerful thing to do, which is that you don't just imagine the story. You imagine that you're in the story. So um, you so let's take, for example, um, oh, let's do the stilling of the storm. That's a, a good one because everybody knows it very well. So you don't just imagine that uh, the disciples are on a boat and Jesus is there. You imagine you're on the boat with them. And then you spend time um, feeling it. And um, you, the word feeling becomes really important then. What does it feel like to be on um, this boat in the middle of the storm? Um, why did you get on the boat in the first place? Where did you come from? What made you think that that was a good idea? Um, now you're on the boat and the storm's whipped up. Um, what are you thinking now? Um, how does it feel? Um, you see Jesus is asleep. Um, why does, how does that make you feel? What do you then do? So you actually, it's as though you're there. It's kind of virtual reality Bible reading. It's like you've entered the text and you're actually there doing it. And having imagined all of that and felt all of those emotions, then go back and read the text really carefully and noticing particularly what you've imagined that wasn't there as well as what, what you imagined that was. Um, one of the things that we often do is we add in extra pieces of information because, um, frankly, the Bible narratives are so short that you have to add in extra things to make them make sense. So just notice, what have you added in that wasn't there? What have you um, done that was already there? And then ask yourself some questions. Uh, so, for example, do I know what a boat would look like in the first century? When it says Jesus was asleep um, in the stern, what does that look like? Um, can you can you imagine what he was wearing? Um, and then so then what you end up with is a whole load of questions you have to go and find the answer to. Um, it's incidentally very easy to find a picture of a boat in the first century because they found one archaeologically not long ago and reconstructed it. So you can actually imagine what one really looked like. Um, do you need to know anything about weather conditions in the Sea of Galilee? Um, what happens when a storm blows up? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Um, what might Jesus have been wearing? What were nets like um, in the first century? Can you get a sense of that? And then what you can start doing is start popping in um, into your imagination um, the things that you know. So if you might think back then to the boat that you saw and realize that you were thinking of a P&O ferry or something and might need to readjust or maybe a shipping boat, a fishing boat from Scotland or something like that. So you kind of have to take details out that you realize now are inaccurate and put new ones in um, and then imagine it again. Um, and then what, what I guarantee that you'll do when you start doing this is um, as you go, you'll realize that there are other details you didn't realize you needed to know. How far across is it from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other? So when they're in the middle of the lake, how far away from the edge are they? Because you need that when you're seeing it um, in your mind's eye. Though you get the idea. And actually what you yeah, do is you start kind of adding extra things in and then, you, and then you'll suddenly go, oh, but I don't know. Um, you know, what, what the buckets would have looked like that they kept the fish, fish in. So off you'll go and find out what the buckets they would have looked like. And then you bring that bit back. Um, and all of a sudden it, start coming, it starts coming to life. 
uh, and then you've got to begin you've got a kind of a kind of a sense of really what's going on um and that for yeah. me is when it starts getting really exciting yeah, I was going to say, I feel like you've even just in asking those questions, you've brought that story to life for me in a whole new way and, and also given me a, a whole new way of, um, yeah, how to, to read some of those stories in the Bible. Um, and I'm sure that uh, writing both uh, Phoebe and Lydia, you had to do lots of yes. this. Um, so maybe we could just chat mm. briefly about um, those two novels. So uh, what specifically led you to write them and why those two characters and, and how do the novels, uh, maybe for those who might like to read them, help us understand these two significant women in the New Testament and also Paul's letter um, and his context more generally? Well, I have to start by saying, I know you've been calling them novels. I don't call them novels. <laughs> Just to be What should we be calling um, them? I, um, I, I'm calling them, I call them stories, not novels. And the okay. reason why stories. I'm calling them stories and not novels um, is because um, in a novel, the story is what it's about. So basically, in a in a novel, kind of, um, and I've got various friends who are novelists and know that. So basically, um, there are some people who know where a, a novel will go, but mostly what they do is they 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 paint the characters and they get to know the characters, and then it goes wherever it goes. Um, for me, that wasn't what I was doing when I was writing both Phoebe and, Phoebe and Lydia, because what I was doing, um, if it sounds really boring when I tell you what I thought I was doing. Well, what I thought I was doing was writing a bit of Pauline theology in narrative form rather than as a piece of Pauline theology. So the thing that drove the stories was Paul, Pauline theology, not the characters or where they were going or what might happen. Um, and for me, that's quite an important distinction. What I want people to have got out by the end of the book is something about Pauline theology that they didn't know before and they probably wouldn't have got because they're not likely to be the kind of people who would pick up a commentary on Romans or Philippians. Um, so they've kind of got stuff um, which is um, theological. So it ha has a slightly different motivation behind it. Yeah. Um, why did I choose them? Because um, both of them, Phoebe and Lydia, are absolutely tantalising characters. And I've been tantalised by them for many, many years. Um, Phoebe, if you um, start um, in Romans, so there's a mention in Romans 16, 1 to 2, of this person called Phoebe. And Paul gives various pieces of information about her, that she's come from Cenchreae, which is a port, um, one of the port cities in Corinth, that she was a deacon of the church in Corinth. Whatever that means, she was a deacon. And um, the church in Corinth um, understood a deacon sufficiently enough to for her to have the title. And the people in Rome understood the, the title enough for them to go, ah, a deacon. Um, it is one of those moments where as a New Testament scholar, I do want to say to Paul, you couldn't have said what that meant. Because in New Testament scholarship, precisely what deacons were in the first time first century is a really contested area I mean it would just have been useful if Paul could have gone Phoebe a deacon in the church of Cenchreae who most of the time did it would have solved us a whole yeah. load of problems but he didn't so there you go so she was from Cenchreae she um, was a deacon 
Paul describes her um, using a word, um, um, an important Greek word, which is prostatis. Um, and a prostatis, when used normally um, in the Roman Empire, meant somebody who was a patron, somebody who was wealthy, who looked after other people, used their money to take care of other people. Um, so it suggests to us that she's wealthy, that she's got some kind of interesting wealthy background, and she certainly used her money to look after Paul, other people in Corinth, um, and now she'd arrived in Rome. We also um, um, know from um, the way in which Paul sets it up that she's probably taken the letter of Romans from Corinth to Rome because of the way in which Paul describes her. The language that he uses um, suggests that he thinks that she's a representative, that to treat her like she's him. So therefore, she's brought the letter and she's going to deliver it to them. And then the, the first, last thing that you find in commentaries um, is that Phoebe is most often a slave name. So therefore, um, the fact that she isn't a slave now indicates she was probably a freed slave. And what commentators ha um, have done in all, most of the commentaries that I've read is they lay out these little facts. You know, she was a deacon. She came from Corinth. She um, brought the letter of the Romans. She was a patron. She was a freed slave. And then they go, right, verse three. And I'm going, wait, 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 wait. Um, you've just told me some really, really interesting things about a person. And now you're going to move on and tell me um, what, what's important in verse three, which is right, because it's a commentary. But for years, I've wanted to go, isn't that bundle of information just tantalizing? Doesn't that just kind of, it, it's one of those in terms of your imagination, surely that gets your juices flowing in terms of who this person might have been. So for years, it feels as though Phoebe um, has been sitting um, on my shoulder, um, kind, of, kind of saying, wouldn't you like to think more about me? And in the end, I went, yes, I would, which is why I um, wrote, the, wrote Phoebe. Lydia, similarly, because um, the fascinating thing about Lydia is, again, from Acts 16, we learn some little nuggets about her, which are all absolutely fascinating. So things we know about Lydia is she's called Lydia from a place called Thyatira, which is in Asia Minor. Um, and in fact, the intriguing thing about that, which I decided not to put in the book because it all got a bit overcomplicated, but the area of Asia Minor in which Thyatira is, is Lydia. So um, it, it's possible that Lydia is a nickname rather than her actual name. They're calling her Manchester you know, the equivalent thereof, um, which I think is intriguing. But like I say, in the end, I, I, I played with it for ages and then went, no, that's getting too complicated. So I put that bit down. So she comes from Asia Minor. She now lives in Philippi, which is a Roman colony um, in northern Greece. Um, she is a dealer in purple. And purple is a really, really important commodity in the first century. In the first century, purple was pound by pound, more valuable than gold. So it's therefore she is a very successful businesswoman who's selling one of the most um, sought after commodities in, in the Roman world, because both in the Roman world and in other cultures that existed in the time, um, purple was the thing that showed that you were a person of high status. If you want to demonstrate that you are somebody important, you will wear purple. So therefore, um, it tells you something about the nature of her business. Um, and then you can go into more detail. I'll tell you very quickly because I think it's it's utterly fascinating that normally purple is made using the murex shellfish, which is found on the Mediterranean. And that produces a shade of purple that's known as Tyrian purple. 
But there is um, also a form of making purple, which is found in Lydia in Asia Minor, um, which comes from something called the madder root, and that produces Turkish red, which I know doesn't sound very purpley, but it falls in the purple spectrum. And um, one of the really interesting questions about Lydia was whether she had brought madder, madder root purple, Tyrian and Turkey, Turkey red, to northern Greece um, and was selling that kind of purple. Um, the other thing that's just interesting in terms of archaeology is people have now discovered that in the first century, people were experimenting with colours. And you can find various parts of purple that are a mix between Murex shellfish, Tyrian purple and Madarut, Turkish red. You can tell I did way too much research on this. Um, so, but then therefore, what you've got is somebody in northern Greece who has brought um, something from Asia Minor that the people in the Roman colony really wanted, but might have been also experimenting. So you've got all of that stuff. And then you've got, um, we are told in Acts, that um, Paul has this far in his missionary life been proclaiming the good news in the what we would now call the East. He's not gone any further East, um, any further West than Turkey. But then he has a vision from a man from Macedonia, which is um, the part of Greece that Philippi is in, saying, come over and help us. So he went over to Philippi. The very first person he met was Lydia, and she became a Christian straight away. So the very first ever Western Christian um, is Lydia. Um, and again, is that not just a bundle of fascinating facts that makes you go, but she must have been really interesting. And then just when you get into that, you go, well, Lydia was in Philippi. And we know something else about Philippi because Paul wrote a letter to Philippi called Philippians. Um, and she's not mentioned. Where did she go? And anyone who's got any form of imagination about them would start itching at the details. Um, that's why I chose them both, just because they're both um, they have this kind of bundle of fascinating things that we know about them, which then say, yeah, but wouldn't you like to know more about them? So that's that's kind of what I've learned. And that's why they kind of really kind of got my juices um, flowing. And what I learned out of writing both of them, and for me, this is the really interesting thing, is that we assume, you know, I talk to lots of people about Paul's theology because it's my job. Um, and a lot of people will say, do you know, I just can't get on with Paul's writing. It makes no sense to me. You know, it's really hard. I find it hard to kind of engage with it. It doesn't kind of do anything for me. Um, other people, not the same, but um, there are quite a lot of people who find Paul really difficult. And yet we look back into the first century and we assume that everyone totally understood everything that Paul wrote the first time he wrote it and went, yes, of course, um, we'll do what, as you suggest. And it's quite clear this is not the case because um, the example I always give uh, is 1 and 2 Corinthians, because 1 Corinthians um, indicates that Paul wrote to the Corinthians and they went, we don't think so. Um, and that's what caused um, eventually 2 Corinthians. So actually, the Corinthians had a really difficult relationship with Paul and really wrestled with him. And what that made me realise was that what we don't think about is how who we are as people and what our experience has done to us affects how we read scripture. And that just because that's true of us 
means that it was almost certainly true of people in the first century as well. So therefore, the people who existed at the time of Paul um, probably wrestled with him just as much as we wrestle with him. And that actually, if you are a slave and you hear Paul talking about being a slave, that will be played differently for you than if you are an aristocrat in the Roman Empire. If you're a woman, it's going to feel different than if you're a man. Um, if you're a successful businesswoman or you are somebody um, who has no money at all, all of those things will feel different. So that's what I'm trying to get into is to kind of recognize that people um as paul was saying earlier we have empathy with people let's try and get empathy with some of these people who existed in the bible and it might tell us a little bit more about them it's fascinating thank you so much paul and people can purchase um any of the books that you've referenced online i believe um i think that probably brings us almost to the end of our conversation today paul is there anything um closing that you'd like to say well, or I, I love the fact about Lydia's name I think you definitely should have included that in the book that would be amazing and I think this idea of doing um sort of the work both imaginative but just some of the historical work is often so liberating mm. for us isn't it um you know for example if we think that there are challenges confronting the church in the west today um, it's quite comforting in its way to read um, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and see, well, you know, if we think we've got challenges, you know, they have challenges. Um, and then similarly, gosh, they were, if we're struggling with Paul and struggling to kind of work out what exactly is he saying um, to, to realise that, no, 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 that, that's not a new experience. You know, that is something that we have in common. Um, I suppose one of the things I was thinking about um, when looking at your books, um, the stories, um, Paula, is there was a, a book I read probably six months into doing theology as an undergraduate um, called The Shadow of the Galilean, um, Gerd Thyssen, I think that's how you yeah. pronounce his surname. And, and there's some similarities um, with that in terms of entering the world of Jesus and sort of just coming at it from a different angle that then helped me illuminate perhaps some of the gospel narrative to, to what extent would you say Paula that um, I mean I'm assuming the work you've done has helped illuminate obviously your understanding of Lydia and Phoebe and Paul and Romans etc cetera, etc cetera. I mean is does that still live with you I mean what change has has writing those two stories had on your not only on your scholarship but on your on your on your kind of life and understanding of the Christian faith potentially Oh, it's completely transformed things for me. And incidentally, Gert Tyson um, had a complete... Um, when I read Gert Tyson as an undergraduate, I went, somebody needs to write a book on Paul like this. Um, and so I waited and I waited and I waited. And in the end, I went, oh, it's clearly me. So um, although ironically, um, having done Phoebe, uh, I then discovered that Ben Witherington had done a similar one called Priscilla. And uh, so clearly I wasn't the only one who had the idea that it was a good idea to do it on Paul. But back to um, what, how has it transformed things for me? In more ways than it's possible to describe, actually, I've realized that emotion is a very important part of my faith. And one of the reasons that people struggle to read Paul is it looks like you're not allowed to be to introduce your emotions and then to recognize that actually Paul is a profoundly emotional writer and begin to understand that. So something around emotion, something around um, being able to forgive people. Um, the, the thing that for me was really quite significant um, was recognising that 
one of the things, you know, the, the things that were difficult about Paul for various people in the first century actually required them to forgive themselves, to forgive Paul, to forgive things that went on. And then that began, made me realise quite how much we in our everyday lives need to learn to forgive um, and to apologise, to, both to apologise and to forgive um, so the stuff about kind of living and forgiveness, um, there's stuff about kind of simply recognising that life is complicated and that therefore if we read the biblical narrative just at its surface level, actually what we're not doing is paying deep attention to some of the stuff that's going on beneath the text. So there's so much and the biggest way in which it's transformed me is I can't stop now. I can't stop writing stories. I'm in the middle of another book um, of stories just as we speak, um, because um, it's it kind of it's a little bit like it's quite addictive once you start reading the Bible that way. Yeah. Oh, Paula, thank you so much. Um, it's been such an interesting conversation, and I feel like I'm now desperate to sit with one of those stories and and sort of um, use some of the strategies and. Um, the thought processes that you've introduced us to. So thank you. Um, and you mentioned you've got an, another book that you're um, working on. I wonder if you could give us a little teaser or a snippet of what, what's coming. Indeed. It's like, so I, I published, uh, I forget when it was, a couple of years ago now, Women of Holy Week, um, which um, was nine stories about women uh, who accompanied Jesus in the last week of his life. And I'm now writing nine stories about women of Advent and Christmas. So four for Advent, five for Christmas. And so little little stories about women and their role. Um, I must admit, the thing I didn't think through when I was um, conceiving the idea and signing the contract was um, a quite grim stories. And the more you tell the stories, the grimmer they get. So um, it's, um, I think yeah, everyone would imagine, oh, a lovely Christmas book. Um, there's quite a lot of babies dying in it, which is not such a happy theme. But anyway, never mind. I decided to do it. <laughs> well, we look forward, um, if that's yes. the right phrase, we look forward <laughs> to those. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Paula. Um, it's been a joy. Thank you. So thank helpful. You. Thank you so much, Paula. So good to see you. It's been great to be with you. Thanks. Bye -bye. So, Paul, what uh, what did you think of our conversation? Bearing in mind, I should add that this is actually due to some technical dif difficulties a couple of days after we originally spoke to Paula. So we are well and truly going to have to channel our imagination. Um, and for the maybe more observant listeners, or perhaps I should say watchers of you, um, if you're watching on YouTube, a little challenge, um, spot the difference between Paul two days ago and Paul now. Um, comment below if 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 you can tell. Um, yeah. But anyway, enough oh, of please, that rambling. Please keep the comments polite. And uh, Grace, <laughs> you look exactly the same, I have to say. Yes, I did um, my best to... Very uh, seamless transition. Thank you. But yes, Paul, um, Paula, imagination, what did you think? Yeah, I thought it was really stimulating, uh, the conversation, and um, really good fun. Um, and I think what I took away from it was this idea that the imagination helps us engage with scripture. Um, and I love the way that Paula talked about the way that she's doing that every day in her scholarship. She is re-entering the world of scripture and living it and, and seeing the people and the places and almost feeling the temperature and, you know, you know smelling the dust, as it were, of the, the spaces and places she's inhabiting. But the imagination has another function that it actually helps us then to relate scripture, the Christian story to our everyday lives and concerns and situations. And therefore there's this challenge to 
exercise the imagination. And I guess one of the things I'm thinking about is, well, how could I do that? How could I, like a muscle, exercise um, my imagination in order that I might more authentically engage with scripture, the Christian story, and then relate that story to my everyday lives um, and concerns. And uh, so I thought that was really, uh, really helpful. And I thought also this idea that the imagination is a really important part of what makes us human. So it was interesting when you asked Grace whether Paula had a theology of the imagination, the way she talked really about having a theology of creativity, the fact that we're yeah. created in the image of a creative God, um, but nonetheless, as part and parcel of that, using our imaginations um, is a is a really human thing to do, and a, a really life giving yeah. thing to do. So, they were some yeah. of my takeaways from it. What about you? Yeah, I, I totally agree, and I think um, one of the things that struck me quite early on in the conversation that Paula spoke about is actually how the imagination is very emotive. And how when we imagine things, we we feel them and we inhabit them. And I think, as you say, that's that's a really vital thing when reading the Bible, especially, is, is for us to put our put ourselves in those stories. And, and I think if we're going to be relating the Bible to, you know, today, today and um life as we know it, we need to be able to feel and obviously we're not going to be able to experience. Jesus calming the storm in the same way um, as as the disciples did, but for us to be able to, yeah, sort of step into that space. Um, and then I think the other thing that really struck me was when she spoke about this whole idea of imagination and storytelling and how actually, I suppose, whether it's to do with the Bible or not, when we, st- yeah, storytelling requires imagination, doesn't it? We're never going to be able to tell a story in the exact way that it happened without whether it's, you know, embellishing certain things or offering our own reflections or um, maybe imagining a bit of what could have been. And I thought that was a really interesting thing as well that we can bring into everyday life is, you know, when we're, when we're sharing part of our life with somebody or we're, we're trying to um, bring somebody into an experience that's happened to us. And sometimes that's, that's for their good, you know, it's sharing of common experience or, you know, that whole idea I think you talked about as well of empathy um, and I suppose I'd never really thought of how essential imagination is in storytelling. Um, and I know, it, you know, in my my work, especially a lot of what I do is is telling stories of of lives that have been changed. Um, yeah. In, in my context, by people who have um, heard about how their whole life matters to God. And so I think hearing her express a bit about about that, that sense of, of storytelling imagination and how that can bring things alive for other people. Um, I really enjoyed and found that helpful to hear her talking about that. Yeah, that was great, wasn't it? And I spoke with someone yesterday who had been um, over the last few months traveling in the steps of St. Paul. And uh, he was saying that, you know, he now won't read Philippians in the same way, again, having been mm. to Philippi. And I know that one of the really formative experiences for me was when I was about 10 years old, um, swimming in uh, the Sea of Galilee and then eating, you know, on the on the beach afterwards. And and that has changed the way that I think about um, episodes in in the Bible that that center on Galilee. Now, we can't all go and visit Philippi or, or, or go to the Sea of Galilee. Um, but uh, Paula's encouragement to use our imagination is 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 another way of doing that. Um, and, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and there are so many resources, aren't there, available to help us in that? But it's been fun. Good, yeah. a really good. It has conversation. Um, 
we hope what's you, next well that's a very good question we'll keep that under wraps shall we for now um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but there it, is more coming we should say there is, there is I've, there's always more and um the next one is really good um and if you uh if people enjoyed this episode of the whole life we'd love them wouldn't we grace to subscribe uh, we'd love Absolutely. them to uh, leave a review. Uh, we'd love um, them to, we'd love you to tell all your friends about it. Um, but I think that's uh, a wrap almost. So until next time from Grace and me, that was The Whole Life. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.